Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Axis Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and the MEAs, and your host for Media Maven's podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirate, who's in public affairs and who's our world-renowned sportscaster. Hi, Joe. Hello, Sarah. Hey, we've got a good uh, show today, and I'll tell you something. I'll give you a little story. About maybe eight or nine years ago, our county attorney, when I used to work for a county, sat there and actually said out loud on the TV that everything was safe with all of our data online. Guess what happened the next day? Who got poached? We got hacked. Yes. So, hey, the person who is, you know, who knows all about this hacking and I mean, he's helped on the movie Snowden and several other movies. Ralph Etchemendia, I'm sorry about mangling that name, but oh he's joining us it. today. Raphael. It's, it's been mangled way worse than that. I okay, assume. good. <laughs> <laughs> Raphael, oh my God, like you're one of my favorite people on, when it comes to cyber hacking and security. I'm going to jump right in here because I think everybody knows what cyber hacking security is. I don't have a good story like Joe's, but I know you're going to turn my rover on or the microwave on from wherever you are right now. So Raphael, you are world renowned. You are known as the world's most ethical hacker, which is why you're on Ollie Snowden's, Ollie's set for Snowden to guide them through it. I know that white hat terminology applies to ethical hackers. Let's talk about your history, what you've done, because cybersecurity kind of falls hand in hand with ethical hacking, but I'm gonna kind of let you dig through and educate us and tell us how did you get into this and what are you doing with all of this right now? And any good stories would be good to share. We, we've got tons of things we can talk about. But, you know, what got me into this is really a hobby. Computers were a hobby for me at the age of 13, 14. One of my buddies in the neighborhood that I used to ride bikes with, his uh, father was a ham radio guy into, you know, sort of electrical engineering, and so was his brother. And so that, you know, that, that's kind of how I was uh, exposed to it originally by being exposed to radio frequencies and how radio worked. And, you know, like I said, they were into ham radio, and, and that's kind of, what piqued my interest into how do things work that you don't see, right? That are not necessarily physical. And then uh, a little later, not too much later, but within that period of time, then this thing came in those we call phone freaking, which was, you've heard about it sort of Jobs, Steve Jobs used to sell these little blue boxes, as we used to call them. You can make them at Radio Shack for like 10 bucks and they would put out a, uh, a frequency 2600, which would allow megahertz, which would allow you to make free phone calls from my phone. So it originally started with playing around with that stuff, and then a computer came in. My first computer was a Commodore 64, and the way that, interestingly, that came up, the story there is that my friend, Homer, who introduced me to all this at an early age, he told me at one point, we were doing all the, the phone freaking stuff, and he said, that, you know, if we, if we had a computer and a modem, I found out about these BBSs that stands for bulletin board systems back in the day before the internet and, and they have porn on them. And I said, what? I'm 14. I'm like, yeah, let's go get some porn. So I told my mom to get me a Commodore 64. She thought, you know, the days where Atari was king. And uh, 
she knew no different that it was a computer. It was just a, you know, a, a video game Ralph wants to play. So I got a, you know, a, for Christmas, got a Commodore 64 and a modem and then started from there. This was all a hobby, Ralph. So you, you were just tinkering with computers and radios as a hobby and you've grown into the world's most ethical hacker. I mean, that's just a tremendous hobby to have. I would have never imagined that the hobby would have turned into a career. And it wasn't until later, uh, approximately when I was 20, 21, because my true love, interestingly enough, which goes around, comes around, was always music and sound engineering. So it was still technical. It wasn't like my father's musician, my mom's musician, but I didn't really you know, have the wherewithal to sit down and play the piano or the guitar, nor did I have any clue as to how to write a song. But I did have a good ear, and, and so my, you know, from very early, my, if you want to call it my actual career during those days, from like 15, 16, was DJing and doing sound for <laughs> bands as they came through Miami. So the, it, I had no idea that this hobby would lead to a career, and, and certainly not one that would uh, put me, at, you know, working on movies with Oliver Stone or, you know, doing some very crazy things. So, so it was only around 2021 that, I got married at 19, actually, and it was then that I said, oh, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff and, you know, get a real job. <laughs> and, and the real job turned out to be a, a secretarial position in a public relations company, Sarah. So, yeah. and, uh, you know, this, this publicist, this is around the time that, you know, the, the computer was now word perfect was the thing to use as opposed to a typewriter or a word processor. And so I went in for an interview for that and uh, gave me a written piece of paper and said, make it look like this. And it was a press release. You know, it didn't take me more than a couple of minutes to print it out. And I was hired. And, and so the transition to tech happened really there because during that time, that company used to handle Lexmark printers, PR, and for Latin America. And Lexmark had just recently split from IBM. So it was just the beginnings of, of Lexmark. And they, they were doing all these promos in South America. So I got to fly out fly out of the country for the first time. And, and it was there that I met engineers from IBM who I thought like, wow, you know, these are engineers at IBM. And then I'd be like, you know, you get into nerd talk and I'd be like, well, did you know about this? And I'd show them something and they were like, what the hell was that? And, you know, I would make all the printers print, you know, things that they had no idea that to be done. I'd be like, what, you don't know this? And, and so that, it was there that a conversation came up where he said, you know, I'm gonna give you a recruiter's number. Uh, you know, well, he asked me, what are we doing? I said, I'm a secretary, you know, I'm an administrative assistant. And he was like, why? With what you know, you should be working in, in IT. I didn't even know IT technology was a, a thing, a tech, you know, an industry like that. And, and so, yeah, right after that, I did go to, now I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't go to college. So it was, uh, sort of like, I can't get a job working for big blue or one of these companies without those things, you know? And he said, just lie. <laughs> he literally said that. Just lie on your resume. They cannot confirm it. And this was way back then. So it's like, really? Okay, talk to the recruiter. Recruiter helped me through the process. And next thing you know, I was working at Oracle. And I didn't know what Oracle was, much less that it was that big of a company. So that was my first real IT job, was running the, tech, the network for Oracle at Latin American headquarters in Miami. And since then, security didn't even play a role. Okay, so the word hacking was very much a subculture 
and, and, and a subcultural type of thing. You saw it in movies like the movie Hackers with Angelina Jolie and movies like Sneakers, right? Where you saw and you, that. And you did Mr. Robot too, right? Mm-hmm. So I worked on basically the, about the first five episodes of Mr. Robot. And, and uh, you, and as, as a hacker, you clearly grew into your trade here. Not to cut you off on your history there, but were you, between Snowden and um, Savages and Mr. Robot, were you the expert in cybersecurity and hacking to help guide them through what was realistic and what wasn't on these shows? Well, yes, and, and, and there was more to it, too. On Savages and Mr. Robot, as well as another movie called Nerves, I, uh, I acted as a, as a technical consultant to the writers and the director, or directors on the script and that sort of thing. On on Snowden, that was the second movie I worked on with Oliver. And and actually there was time in between that I took Oliver to DEF CON, which is a big hacker convention in Vegas. And this is before Snowden came out, right? So Oliver already wanted to go in that direction. And I was giving him all of the access to, to research what he wanted to do. And then Snowden happened and he moved pretty quickly on getting Snowden made. Uh, so I was actually involved in not only uh, at a much more earlier level on the development of the script. And then as we actually went into pre-production, then I was involved in creating the systems, the actual technology systems that we would use for communications between, between all of the crew and all of the assets of the film, which was the, you know, it was the first time Oliver was doing a digital, the movie was being shot in digital. And it was the first time he had ever done that. So, Everything was a digital asset, and so I was responsible for, in addition to the script and, and being a technical supervisor on set, then I also had to make sure that all the digital assets would not get in anyone's hands so they were not supposed to. Got it. So, you know, I, so it's so interesting because you've done such great stuff, and I know, I mean, ethical hacking is kind of the same thing. It's all about cybersecurity. We've had so many issues. I know Thrive Cosmetics just had a serious hack everybody's credit cards and data and information. You know, we see it from Best Buy, from Target. I mean, give us a little bit of background. I mean, how much in the cybersecurity space are you working on? Because I know they say there's all these things we could do to protect our data and information. But is, is I mean, is anything really safe out there from, I'm going to say, these white hats or these hackers that are running around across the world? Well, you know, technology has evolved, no doubt, and that there's a lot of encryption and all these type of things. For example, you know, I'd say more than 90% of what you, or what you would use on the internet, including what the technologies we're using right now are already using encryption. So, you know, it's what's called uh, encryption on the wire or versus, you know, when it's actually on a hard drive, right? And it's been made a lot easier for things to be encrypted, right? So encryption is being used and that's just one level of security, but there's a lot of different elements to security. And the weakest of those issues or the weakest link in that is the humans. So it doesn't matter how much security you put into, into the process or how much technology you put into the process. I can fool you into saying yes to a prompt, then it doesn't matter what kind of security I put. So there are things that companies, and especially since when I started security, I guess it wasn't even a word. The firewall didn't exist, okay, as a technology. So the industry didn't exist when I got into it. I was a system administrator, a network administrator, or a programmer. That's it. Those were the titles. There was no other title other than that sort of thing. So, you know, more management level titles, but security really started coming about in the, in the 90s and the late 90s as the Internet 
middle to late 90s, you know, right before that, there was a few tools, but then it really became a thing and became a now, you know, a, what, a trillion dollar business or whatever it is on a, on a global basis. But, you know, most of the systems that a lot of enterprises and especially point of sale systems like Target and you hear about all those type of hacks, they were very vulnerable. Right. And they were very old systems, you know, for the most part. So they didn't use encryption. They didn't do all these different things. And they were relatively, you know, when I say easy, you know, easy is only because we know what we're doing, but uh, they were relatively easy to hack. Right. And you have hacks like the Sony hack is another example that, you know, that's a company you would expect would have, would have had all the. Uh, was that security. when somebody hacked into Sony's, the studios a few years ago and all the scripts and everything? Is that the same one? Yeah, that was, that's actually not the only one. Maybe maybe a year and a half, two years prior to that, Sony PlayStation got hacked, and nobody could play PlayStation. So it wasn't the first hack against Sony. That's, that's specifically what's a targeting Sony Entertainment. And it pretty much brought Sony to its knees. It, they hacked the entire company and everything associated with it. So on the entertainment division of Sony. So those are, you know, I, I moved out here to L.A., you know, three years before that happened. And I, I actually held a, an event at the House of Blues while I was still there called Hacking Hollywood's Hard Drive. And I, there were a bunch of industry people. And, and I, one of them was, uh, is now a partner of mine. But basically, he was a, a manager at a, a music management company who happened to be across the street, too. And he, was, he helped to, to put this together. So I, in real time, hacked his assistant and turned the camera on back at the office and freaked everybody out in the audience. And I was saying, this is how easy Hollywood is to hack because on top of everything else, there's so many assistants and there's so many layers of the human element that it's very easy to manipulate your way uh, through this environment. And it's all very public too. Even though it's very, very um, relationship driven, most names are public. So and a lot of information is, is publicly accessible about the people in the industry. So, and here you are two, three years later, you know, Sony gets literally brought to its knees, uh, couldn't operate for like a month, right? So even though I was out there saying it all the time, the problem with security is most people and most companies don't see it as an issue until it's an issue. And when it is an issue, oh, then all of a sudden, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you way more than it would have cost you to, be pre to prevent it from happening. Once it's happened, then it's now you're in remediation. You know, you are reacting to it. And who knows what's been affected, right? So that's now think about what's happening in the world today when it comes to the issue of how information is being used. You know, misinformation, political. I mean, it's it's gone. It's now driving the entire planet. Is what we see on these screens, where you know it's we knew that twenty years ago, thirty years ago, you know, twenty five years ago as kids that this was it. But you know, I could have not foreseen you know 10 years ago that you know the geopolitical situation of of, of the world would rely on what people see on a screen well it's also like i think as technology evolves technology gets smarter hackers and people get smarter and you know we all look at I me mean, right now the big buzz i mean it's clearly it's not just the retail boxes banking which is always a security like you said it's um politically you know i mean not to go down a dark road with you, but, you know, the whole big scandal with, you know, Russia and manipulating the elections. I mean, I just feel like because it was such a 
basic thing for people's identity. I feel like there's something bigger out there on a political level. And, you know, we see all these movies and shows like Snowden. And there's another one, White Hat one with not Ethan Hawke, one of the, you know, one of these big actors. And I kind of always wonder something of that size of that magnitude and seriousness globally impacting us. Is that real life stuff that happens that you're seeing and or have you worked with, or is it just kind of stuff that's dramatized for the movies or how realistic is all this stuff? Well, you know, for example, Mr. Robot was the first, you know, the first project, honestly, that I had seen in a long time that wasn't over dramatized and that it had enough of, of the real world in it. Hence, you know, advising them on, uh, on that sort of what tech should be there and what it should look like. And also where it made sense to go into how deep of the tech, right? Because at the end of the day, it's still entertainment. And, you know, some things are not, not that important to the actual narrative, right? So, but I haven't seen too many, to be honest with you. But for example, Black Hat, which was the first, you know, Michael Mann film. It was uh, the first kind of major Hollywood movie to be made about a hacker, hence called Black Hat, was a total disaster. There wasn't anything in there that, you know, resembled a reality, right? And then that was why Oliver, for example, with, with Snowden, it was as realistic as we could make it, right? And now yeah, there'll be struggles sometimes with certain issues that say, you know, I think you have, uh, you know, we need to have this here and ultimately it's this call. But in the end, I think it came out to be a, a really good project. So, so, so cybersecurity and hacking is kind of borderline, kind of mixes over into AI and blockchain technology. I mean, if we look at all the AI going out out there, it's a privacy thing, it's robots, it's other equipment technology doing our jobs for us. I mean, and then we go from that spectrum to the whole Bitcoin which is, and I saw an article on this, where I saw a documentary on the dark web on Netflix, or I think it was Netflix, a series of called the dark web to where on Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin's obviously made by somebody, an algorithm. And some of these Bitcoin farms, they just pull the plug, they get hacked in to pull so much money out, it's not traceable. And so it's kind of scary to think that everybody wants to go Bitcoin and crypto, but is there really a security level there or I mean, we know people on the dark web use it. We know all that stuff. But I know so many people in Bitcoin and that whole space of fintech. And the big concern that nobody's addressing is what about these hackers who are smarter than the investors? Because once they hack in, there's no way to recoup that money. It's not insured. There's no trace of it. Oh, there's a, you know, in fact, I've had it happen to friends who are somewhat celebrities themselves and as writers, journalists and hip-hop artists and all kinds of people who wanted to play with cryptocurrency and their wallets got stolen. I mean, that's the, the thing is, cryptocurrency, I mean, blockchain number one, let's break that up, blockchain is, is really more of a general ledger. It's a logging mechanism. That's all it is. So that's the security in blockchain. It's just going to track every step of, of the way. And that technology makes sense in a lot of different areas and in different industries. Uh, where there's areas and industries that are not yet actively adopting blockchain, who should, like healthcare. Your healthcare record should be do, do using blockchain. The other is voting. Voting should be using blockchain. You know, I lived in this country for two and a half, three years, going back and forth in Estonia. They already have electronic voting. You can vote from your phone, and they've had it for years. So you wonder, why don't we? 
Yeah, we are, you know, where Apple lives. You know, it's just quite interesting to see how maybe it is more of a political issue, right? But the technologies exist to make all these systems way, way better, right? But inherently, the like I said, the insecure part is us because we're the users. We're the, and you know, I hate using that term because it, you know, you, you do realize the only two industries in the world who use the term users are drug dealers and software. Interesting. Ah, good now, to me, know. I'd like to ask you, Ralph, I, I know that you've been uh, consulting with uh, several huge companies for the last uh, tw- quarter of a uh, quarter of a decade or a quarter of a century. I'm sorry. What would you, what kind of advice would you give someone like the average everyday person, how to better protect themselves on the web? A lot of it is, uh, is, is common sense, but as we know, common sense is not that common. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with technology that is, is made to be very user friendly and it's gotten better. I mean, you take a company like Apple and a lot of their products and the way that they're configuring their products as a default when you first turn them on, you know, there are basic things you can watch out for. Nobody should be, you know, giving up their password. Look at the URLs of where you're going to. Just because it looks like eBay doesn't mean it is eBay. Okay, be very careful with these type of things. It's a matter of that. I just think it's interesting because like I see so much of these people masking these emails right now. And you're right. We do have to be smarter than the technology oh, at times I mean, for that. Sarah, we've had spam when, you know, when once we got rid of or started to control spam to a degree, you know, then all of a sudden they shifted and now it's more, you know, it's, it's more done on the web than via email. Right. Well, text um, messages, since COVID, I've gotten more spam on text messages, Netflix, Best Buy, all this stuff. And I'm like, what? I, and I know that's spam and that's crap. But sometimes I kind of look twice thinking, wait, do, do they have my cell? Because, I, you know, banking has my cell for text messages, security. And everybody uses, you know, for mobile, you know, there's so much they could get texts on for alerts and stuff. So there's, I've seen so much text more than ever. No, it's absolutely right like on the texting and everybody's texting us because I'm seeing a lot of texts coming through on spam in the last four or five months. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's actually a bigger problem here in the U.S. than it is in other places in the world, text anyway. Interestingly enough, we're going back, right? So we went from from, uh, text originally to email, right? And then the web, and now text is being used as as an attack vector because what you believe, when you get in text, you tend to believe for some reason, it's sort of like getting something in the mail and you believe it, right? If I, if I can put the logos of the IRS and make a letter look like it's the IRS, I can send it over to you. I can drop it off myself and then call you five minutes later and say, you get the letter. This is so-and-so from the IRS. You will believe it. So text is another one of those that our phone numbers are sitting in a lot of databases and those databases are being sold for the purpose of marketing, Right. And then there's a, there's, there's a world that most people don't even have a clue about called dark marketing, right? This is, you know, illegal database, meaning hacked databases with a lot of people's information that are being sold to, to be used by legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate marketing companies. So there's a lot of data going around and our phone numbers have become more and more, more important, right? Interesting. Like, so I know like you could download like VPNs and I think it's Torx that masks any access for your IP and where it's at, is, is that the right terminology? Yeah, so VPNs and Tor. Tor is how you actually access things like the deep web or dark web. And 
VPNs are mainly used to make it look like you're coming from somebody else, some, somewhere else now. Yeah, to a degree, it helps mask things, but it's not necessarily, that does not mean that it's not traceable. And, you know, back to your question earlier about Bitcoin, Bitcoin is traceable too. It was originally, you know, with this idea that you're anonymous. No, it's not because to get the coin, you have to use real money, right? You're going to have to transact to ultimately get the coin. And then once that blockchain's in place, then it's all very traceable. That's, that was kind of the, the idea, but there are a lot of other cryptocurrencies that are not, right? Or, or that their blockchain intentionally does get rid of things uh, to, you know, it has to do with the use cases of them. So again, technology is the matter of what the, what is the actual need, right? And how it's used. So, you know, like I said, basic things like passwords, passwords are awful in general, right? Because no matter how much we're human, we're going to tend to, you know, reuse passwords, you know, they're the basic things that any hacker would figure out, you know, Sarah Miller, one, two, three, Sarah Miller, you know, just all these different variations of things that you would do. I'm just using your name as an no, example. No, no, that's but... my old AOL account. No, I'm kidding. There you go. <laughs> but because um, when you do your password, it gives you suggestions, like 25 letters, characters, blood type, and I'm always deleting that and putting something that I could at least remember. So we're all kind of open for a hacker to steal our identity then. It's not only that. You have, you know, systems like one pass and things like that where you can store passwords and they'll generate harder passwords for certain websites and things like that but then you have one place where one password could breach all your passwords so you know ultimately you know there's an acceptable risk we have to realize that we're working with right and everything we do with technology and the technology is a tool for us to use not the other way around mm -hmm. and the problem is that right now it's the other way around for the most part we're the tool <laughs> and technology is using us. So I don't know if you saw the social dilemma on Netflix recently, which is a, a, a really good documentary about, you know, the social network type of issues that exist right now with all of these things that we've been hearing about from the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the, you know, TikTok and so on and so forth. Right. We are, we are the money, right? It's, it's our data that they're monetizing and turning into, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And for the most part, we don't care. And that's the big problem is we just don't care. Let me ask you, Ralph, how far behind is the U.S. when it comes to um, technology? Do you, do you feel that we are behind? Well, I, I feel that, you know, having spent a great deal of time in Europe and Asia over the last few years, I do feel that we are not as hungry in some ways as some other parts of the world are. Right. And so, you know, I see the startup communities in, in Europe, Eastern Europe and Asia being a lot more proactive and working with each other. It's a lot more constructive than it is here. Here we're kind of like separated. I mean, you, when you take something like an NDA, that term barely exists over there. So that just tells you where the mindset is here. Well, right? NDAs don't really exist here. I mean, just being in PR and entertainment, because we've had a few. We used to work with Mac. We helped launch McAfee and E-Trade. Like when I was in San Francisco at a PR firm. And I got to tell you, nobody honors NDAs. They're not even admissible in court anymore. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, the, the, the joke is we still ask for them, right? Yeah. And, and you know, it's just there are, you know, you mentioned fintech, right, earlier. In the financial technology sector, we we kind of still are a joke, right? And in, in many of the ways we do things, a lot of our systems are just not in as in real time as they would be, right? As they should be, 
Well, is, uh, that, is, that, is that the, um, the type of the process? Because we used to work with this company and they were working on, you know, the tap and swipe, tap and go, tap and go, and not long enough to get the charge, but not long enough to be hacked into. And then the government changed, I think it's back with Obama, they changed all the security of credit cards for the chip. But, and this company was trying to say, no, don't do the chip because the chip's going to be outdated sooner than it gets going. And they put billions of dollars in doing the security chips, which forces us to put our PIN numbers in now versus run it through credit. And now other countries are so past the um, chip, they're just in the tap and go form of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all of Europe is on the tap and go. And, you know, the chip ultimately is just another mechanism. But, you know, you know, take, take for example, there's no such thing as, as, as wire transfer fees in Europe. If I want to send you money, Sarah, and you have a European account, I send it from my European account, regardless of what country I'm in, directly into your European account. And there's no fee involved with that, right? So, like, we're still charging $25, $35 for me to send $25 from my account to your account. That's just crazy. Why? Right. If it's, if it's more advanced over there, per Joe's point, is there a higher risk for cyber hacking and security issues over in Europe? Compared no, to- there is not. Mm-hmm. That's the crazy part about it. It's the opposite. In the financial technology sector, I've never seen better security than some of these companies, right? So it's just we're dealing with a lot of legacy problems, legacy procedural issues, and legacy technology issues. A lot of these countries, they just leapfrogged because they didn't have to go through all that, you know? I mean, I always used to give the example of like Venezuela never had cables for regular phone lines. So when wireless came in, the entire country went wireless for communications because why, you know, remember we had ISDN and cable? Mm -hmm. No, they just went straight to completely wireless networks. So. It, it, it's just a matter of, you know, there's different situations with those places. But, you know, in, in general, even though we are the, the technology mega power, everybody wants to deal with Silicon Valley. So everybody call, will tend to call it, you know, their Silicon Valley, you know, in these countries like, oh, Estonia is the Silicon Valley of the Baltics and Norway is the Silicon Valley of, of the Nordics. And they always tend to use that terminology of Silicon Valley. That gives us more. That is the only reason that we're still on top, right? It's because of the perception. The truth is there are incredible technologies being developed all around the world that I feel that we just don't have the same constructive environment within the startup community and here. Interesting. What, okay, so let me ask you this question. You're going to laugh. I know you've done some tremendous stuff. Some you could talk about, some you can't. What is? What have you worked on on like hacking or cybersecurity, if you could talk about it, like the biggest thing you've done. I, I know you've done some work back for the government in some level, but what have you really seen that has made a huge difference that you've been involved with? Well, you know, made a huge difference for who, I guess is the question, because making a difference for everyone, I really can't say that I still have touched on something that has made a difference for everyone. No matter how much I've tried, the problem is adoption sometimes is not at the same speed of Rouse Head. So, you, you, you know, I, I can tell you some interesting ones. I mean, in the earlier days, most of my focus was on, on an area of cybersecurity called penetration testing, which sounds dirty, but it's very clean, actually. And, and it's a matter of just breaking into companies. So companies would hire me to break into their company, which makes it legal, and, and then show them how I broke in and then, sh- you know, Basically, my, my end result here, my deliverable was a report 
that would say, this is how I got in. And this is what I recommend you do to stop that from happening. Right. And you have your high level vulnerabilities your medium and your, and your low. Right. And that still goes on today. And it's quite a big, big industry. Then, and then I kind of fell into forensics because naturally, if you know how to do it, then you're going to know how to find it. Right. So I started doing a lot of more legal cases where I was a forensics expert or an expert witness in court to deal with and help the lawyers to, to develop their cases, right? And those were, I guess, one of the more um, exciting ones was I worked for Eminem. Eminem got hacked and, and yeah, they, they hacked Eminem and, or not Eminem specific himself, but in other words, his music was being released months before its, its intended release. And music that was never intended to be released was being released. So, you know, I worked on that case and literally having to physically track down where is that computer in the world. And and it was in Saudi Arabia. I can only tell you that much. So I had not, you know, and it was a very young person who did the hacking. So, you know, from that to like Twilight, the movie, and these are more on the entertainment side that I can't talk about because they they went public about them. So, you know, Twilight, Breaking Dawn, part one and two were hacked and you know, a number of things were released, pictures and screen captures and that sort of thing way, way, way before the movie was, was supposed to be released. And same thing, we had to track down who the culprits were and, and we did track down who the culprits were. But, you know, but those are, those are fun in a different way. The penetration te- testing stuff is really quite, a, you know, quite fun because every time would be a different company who many of them you would think are unhackable or, you know, not easy necessarily to get into. And so... You know, one one of my crazy stories is I once broke into a data center. You know, that's one of these big buildings with computers in them where companies keep their computers uh, with a lot of security. You know, iris scan, hand scan, all kinds of scans to get in there. You know, guard with guns, you name it. And I, you know, without getting into the details of exactly how I did it, I actually got in there with a stripper. I pretended to be delivering a birthday stripogram for somebody who worked there and basically bullshitted my way in to the point where then I backdoored all the computers in that, in that room. So like there's, there's some that are really kind of cinematic because they're more visual and some that you're sitting in front of a computer for hours and hours and hours. And that's not very entertaining. You know, it's just, it's just, it's amazing that like, it takes these phenomenal brains of, I don't know how they learn how to hack into systems and government files that actually could destroy the government and the, who we are. But then there's the same equivalent of an ethical hacker as you're known for globally to protect us at the same time. It's the same skill set. It's just kind of which side of the fence you're on. Oh, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the way I, I would sometimes try to explain it is that, you know, a gun is not illegal. And shooting one is not illegal, but shooting somebody may be illegal, depending on the, the you know. So this is this in many ways the same thing. We develop bullets, we develop guns. This is now a tool of war in many ways, right? As we're seeing it even in misinformation and disinformation campaigns. So it's like I said, it's how you use it, right? How you use anything responsibly. You can use a fork to eat, or you can use a fork to kill someone. So even something as simple as that is is a tool that could be used as a weapon. And there's no doubt that this little thing in front of me called a keyboard and is now a weapon. 
Yeah, what they're now saying is like there's little things like I have one that you could put over the cameras in your phones. There's been a lot of movies about where they could actually visually see in real time if you don't keep your camera covered on your phone to grab stuff. And then you see all these emails. We've seen you. We've watched your movements, your keystrokes, everything you've been doing online. Send us 10 million Bitcoin by tomorrow. We're going to expose all your data to the universe. I mean, they're all, in my mind, frauds and fakes to steal money from people. They are. They are. In most, in most cases, and I would say that's 99.9% .9 of those cases, they are. You, you know, that's the other thing is a lot of people tend to worry about, you know, the, uh, these things you know, the issue of privacy is one that really we've never defined, right? So, and I'll, I'll use this example, you know, in the physical world, we have defined that if you want to go take a poop, you want a door there, okay? Why we, you know, I don't know why, but society has decided that taking a poop in clear, wide open places is not private, okay? So we define privacy there. And I'll use that because that's the most rawest way to put this in human form, literally. But we haven't defined what is privacy in a digital space. We just keep saying our information should be private. What information should be private? Your name? That's not private because you're giving it away the moment you say, hi, my name is. Okay? Is your phone number something that should be private? Well, that's a different level of privacy because you also give your phone number away. Your email address? You give your email address as much as you give your name nowadays, right? So what exactly are you talking about? You know, 22 million emails were, ha were, you know, were acquired in this hack, okay? So, right? Like, that's not information that we have even deemed is private, right? So, you know, uh, nude pics of uh, someone, okay, well, we define that to be private. Well, how do you define that in a technical space? Because a picture is nothing more than a file. Now you're talking about what's inside the file. Okay, we haven't even gone that level yet on the definition of what privacy means to us. What is the real level or the real definition of privacy when it comes to cyber and hacking? To be honest with you, there is no clear definition. Yeah. Right now, the definition is all data, any data. Well, that's not true, right? That's not true because you yourself are giving it up. You yourself are giving it up to Facebook and Instagram and all these different places. You're giving it up to Google. So what are you saying? You're, you are breaking your own privacy in that case. Google isn't. Facebook isn't. Even if they get hacked, you know, they aren't. So, you know, I, I've, I've often argued that you really, have to, you really have to question who the real criminals are here. The ones who are taking data without permission or the ones that are taking data with permission. Either way, they're taking data you don't realize that you're giving it that way, right? Because you, you're just using these appliances <laughs> like a microwave. I will put that in there, hit the button and warm it up. And that's how you're thinking that that's how simple things work in this world. But obviously there's a lot of data going around that is being used against us, not in our best interest. Right. So, I mean, we're, we're all on social. I mean, talk about the community. We're all on social across the board. And some people say, oh, my Facebook got hacked. Well, we're, we're leaving crumbs and digital footprints wherever we go. So I don't know if there's really any 100% foolproof way to erase your digital footprints. Well, if I put my Facebook on hold, all my social, LinkedIn, and I stay off social, I still have a footprint. I can't truly erase my footprints. Right? No, not, all, not only can you not truly 
not only can you erase your footprints, but in all honesty, the moment that you're on, <clears throat> I mean, that data is never going to go away and it's going to be available to, to, to many more than those who you think you're getting. Doesn't it. Facebook own that? Is, if, is that what's the big issue on privacy and security? It doesn't matter if I go quiet. I will never erase in this time and age a digital footprint because people could say, I don't give you permission, but technically they still have it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Once it's once it's on, it's always on, right? Even if it's not viewable, even if I tell you that, oh, it's gone, it's somewhere, right? In backups, it can be in many different places, really, around the world. And that, you know, you know, tell you cloud computing. With cloud computing, you know, we don't have hard, you know, servers in the office anymore. Everything's on the cloud, and it's all being. It's actually just traveling across the world. It's not necessarily all here. I mean, well, that's one of the, you know, the big uh, misunderstandings of things like this TikTok thing with the ban of TikTok and the sale of TikTok, you know? You know, yes, it's a Chinese company. Yes, they can probably access data if they want to. And what makes that any difference than us? You think the U.S. government doesn't access the data of all of these? Oh, because we have the supremacy of, of having Apple in the United States, of having Oracle in the United States, of having these companies in the United States. But even they have to abide by regulatory compliance in different parts of the world. So if, Sarah, you're sitting in Ireland, your data is not supposed to be in the US. It's supposed to be in Ireland, okay? And it's supposed to be kept within the boundaries, the physical boundaries of the places. In other words, you're, the data at rest the, where the actual data is resting, not when it's being communicated over, right? Data in transit versus data at rest, where the data lies versus where the data travels from and to. And so it gets into all kinds of different uh, regulatory issues that, you know, frankly didn't exist before. And, you know, governments and the likes have been, you know, creating these laws and, and, and these regulatory complaints to deal with all of these hacks that have happened, right? PCIs for, you know, for financial related transactions, GLBH, you know, HIPAA, and, you know, those are just here in the U.S. There are similar ones that apply in Asia and Europe and so on. And they're getting closer to, you know, to, to putting this in, in some level of legal terminology that is actually applicable and implementable, right? But for the most part, they're just language that doesn't say exactly what you need to do. You know, to your point, what can I do to be safer? Well, look at the URLs, use stronger passwords, don't give anything out. If somebody tells you you have to verify who they are and that they work for a company, all these different things that I could tell you, you know, those are specifics. Those specifics don't even exist within these regulatory bodies. That's just, it's so crazy. It's such a wider net, so to speak, of a subject. And I know we're going to run out of time here, Rolf, but a quick question for you before we start wrapping I know we could hack into databases and systems and phones, but is there any easy way to, to have be safe if everything's in the cloud? I mean, can, is the cloud hackable or is it just a matter of time? Everything, everything is hackable. And, you know, Sarah, it's like, look, it, it, consider the real, the, you know, the cyber world is nothing more, you know, it's based on a human being's idea of systems, right? And creating different systems. And we have systems in the physical world. So if you want it to be safer in the physical world, I would say, hey, go learn judo, karate, or taekwondo, or, or kung fu, okay? So 
and so you can be safer. And if somebody attacks you, then you know at least how to move, right? Better. That doesn't make you fully safe. And so you will never be fully safe because the person can have a knife, they can have a gun, or you might not be prepared to be able to, to deal with the way they're coming at you, right? The same thing applies in this world. The difference is, is everybody who's using a computer going to learn Kung Fu? Hell no. And that is the problem. The technologies have been made by technology people, right? And yes, they have been made better to be more user-friendly through those people. But ultimately, it's a language that most consumers don't understand. And when you don't understand something, you tend to shy, you know, go away from it. Yeah, it's like it, the, easier, the, the easier it is on UI, the more relaxed and the more our guards come down because we just think it's easier to use. So it leaves us a little bit more vulnerable for um, cyber attacks and stuff. Uh, exactly. So a lot of it comes down to, to common sense because if you really wanted to be safer, learn Kung Fu, which means actually learn and understand what the hell these technologies are doing. Not many people want to do that the same way that not many people want to learn Kung Fu. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, that's the way it is. So then I it, need to become more tech savvy right now and pay more attention to what we're doing, Roth. I think it's, you know, I think it's a matter of, of, of people wanting to, you know, it has to spark their interest, obviously. Right. And, and I, I, I'm hopeful and I'm actually, you know, more optimistic because to a large degree, you know, the, the newer generation is in some ways smarter than we are because they were born with this stuff in their hands. And you'd be surprised what a 14-year-old can do that I can't do as a hacker because it's just, it, it's they're wired differently, right? So I'm optimistic also with the fact that to them, to the newer generation, the Gen X, the millennials, whatever you want to call them, these newer, younger users, they, they don't even really see boundaries the way that we do, right? And they don't have the legacy of, you know, even the political le legacies of being in one side or another, they're just living in a whole other world where none of that matters, right? And, and it's going to be interesting what their generation does. Now, I think you're completely spot on on that, Rolf. So we are running out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I just think it was such a great topic to touch base on, at least start to talk about as we get through this pandemic and where things are going with technology. I know you're mainly in the entertainment space. I know you got a lot of big companies coming to you for help. If anybody, you know, for everybody listening, because we do have a lot of executives um, who listen to our podcast and tune in, how can anybody reach out to you to find you if they need an ethical hacker or help on the show? Well, I have a, you can go to the website, theethicalhacker.net, where you can find out more about me. And through there, there's a contact page. And, and now I'm most recently involved with a live social video streaming network as a CEO. So my time is very limited. And basically, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give you a little hint. It won't be out till 2021, but it's a, it's a curated live stream performance and social gathering space that will connect creators to their fans and the fans to each other. So it'll be a program world of content where creators stage concerts and sporting events and theater classes, talks, one-on-one -on -one sessions, all that sort of stuff that basically enables and fosters group connectivity, commerce, and direct interaction between fans and performers of any kind of content. Okay, so and we're going to have to have you back. We'll have to get this thing launched. Yeah. It'll be a great story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that, that it'll be something that we'll be talking about very soon. And here's this 14-year-old guy who was on a Commodore 64 doing this now. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought, man? Yeah. 
Okay, guys, I want to thank you so much for um, joining the show today. This is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment, my co-host, Joe Pirate. Thank you, Raphael. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.